so I've been reeling a lot in my mind with um, how all this has worked out tonight. We uh, started Exodus, started marching through it, sat uh, as a staff together, really looked over the plagues, studied them in advance, all of them collectively to really try to understand, and then, and then it dawned on us that we would get to the, uh, to the 10th plague, uh, which happens to be the Passover on the week of Passover. And so I've been again processing that in my mind, like, Lord, how, how would you do all that, and why would you do all that? And uh, for whatever reason, um, it's caused me to ask this question, and I ask it of you now, with a tremendous amount of love for each of you, I ask this question, which with a tremendous amount of care, with a tremendous amount to, uh, of just... I want us together to be on a journey that just doesn't look normal, um, that culture couldn't necessarily explain. So with all that said, what do you feel like you're holding on to? In other words, like when you're in a moment of despair and all of a sudden you feel like there's nothing to hold on to, it's in those moments that you realize what you have been holding on to. Let me say it another way. If I were to take each person's worry currently in this room right now, and I were to like get a big, get a big barrel up here and start piling it all in, I think we'd all agree it, it wouldn't fit. Just think about the worries that this room represents right now. I think about the things today that caused you anxiety, the things today that you were in great angst over. Uh, think about the moments today that you wanted to yell at something or someone. Think about the moments today that you did. Our life is this movie reel that is consistently revealing one thing, what we're holding on to. And... Um, Tonight, my heart is so overwhelmed with not just the thought, but the reality that I literally have nothing to hold on to except Jesus. I have no gift to hold on to. I love my wife. I have no wife to hold on to. I have three beautiful kids, two beautiful kids, one. I have three beautiful kids. I've got uh, an opportunity to minister that I love so deeply. I've got a whole bunch of people that I care about so much, and none of those things I can hold on to because every single one of those things will fail. I got to sit with a couple on Monday and uh, they were describing to me a lot of past church baggage that they have. A lot of ways that pastors in the past have wronged them. A lot of hurts that they have. And they looked at me and they said, I hope that you won't do the same thing. I hope that you won't burn us. And I gave them an answer that they weren't expecting. I was like, actually, I will. I will fail you. I will do things that anger you. But I said, trust is not believing that I will be perfect or that you will be perfect. Trust is believing that when we do fail, that we rest together in the grace of God, the one thing that we have to hold on to. That no one puts on a face that we've got it all together, that we're going to be perfect. But in our humility, we celebrate the one thing that we got. What I'm telling you tonight, church, is you don't have a darn thing but Christ. You don't have anything. You can have all the riches in this world in this room right now, and some of you do. You're loaded. I mean, you got green just flowing out of your wallet, and in the end, it doesn't mean a thing. You can have the greatest marriage, the most rock-solid, beautiful marriage. Your kids could have got saved when they were four years old. I mean, you, you could be just slaying it. You could have 17 homeless people living in your house right now, making them not homeless, but you understand, and still, and still you don't have anything but Christ. And so um, tonight, here, here's, what I, here's what we're going to do. We're going to study more verses than we ever have before in any night at Matthias. 
We're going to do it in a timely-ish fashion. And we're going to learn how God shows Israelites, how God shows Egyptians, how God shows everyone involved that they don't have anything except him. It seems like a good climax to be at the 10th plague. Let's pray, all right? Uh, God, I thank you tonight that we get to talk about things that are real. I thank you tonight that we don't have to uh, rest on uh, myth or fairy tale or human ideologies that have been created to make us feel better. I'm just thankful tonight that, that all we got is you, and that's a great thing. I pray tonight that we celebrate that. I pray tonight that you'll guide us through a very difficult text. And then each of us tonight will journey through it together. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In your great name, amen. So uh, open your Bibles to uh, Exodus chapter 11. There are Bibles on the end of your rows. So if you guys need a sword, that would be great. Uh, There's not going to be scripture on the screens tonight. Uh, So it would be helpful if you have a sword in your hand. Last resort, the LED screen, but I understand if some of you need to do it. There's been nine plagues, nine very intense plagues. Pharaoh's heart has continued to be hardened despite Moses and Aaron going to him several different occasions saying, let God's people go or else. So God has responded sometimes to the or else's and then in other times without warning, God has brought other plagues. There's been nine of them in total so far. I've wondered uh, all throughout this journey, why nine leading up to number 10. What was the purpose? What was the intention? And what I've realized is if God just instantly, after one year of slavery, saves his people, the Israelites, and then one day after he redeems them from slavery, sends his son Jesus, we have no biblical record, no historical view of what God's redemption looks like. Um, There's no opportunity to celebrate what not Uh, seeing his uh, redemption from slavery looks like. And so, 400 plus years of slavery, nine plagues, and here we are in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. We'll see more of this on Sunday as we celebrate the Exodus on Easter. Verse 3, then the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, huge, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Moses... His integrity, who he is as a man, much like Joseph, uh, much like many other uh, characters in the Old Testament, he gains a ton of rapport with the people. Of of course he does. I mean, so far, Moses has only been associated with phenomenal acts of power. But who does this scripture leave out? Let's look at it again, okay? Moreover, the man Moses was great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Who does the scripture leave out? Uh, Pharaoh doesn't think he's hot stuff, right? Like, Pharaoh isn't such a fan of Moses. Like, Pharaoh's not liking his Facebook page. Pharaoh does not like Moses. And the scripture records this, okay? They haven't built a relationship, okay? They're not high-fiving after the plagues. Pharaoh, I believe, hates Moses so much so that we saw at the end of the ninth plague what? Pharaoh do what? He made a death threat, right? He said, get out of my sight. The next time I see you, you'll be dead. Have you ever stopped to think, and I'm going to try to show you so many things maybe about the 10th plague that that some of you who who know the story have never seen before, and those of you who have never heard the story will appreciate. Have you ever viewed God in such a personal way that you would think that Pharaoh makes a death threat to his man Moses, and that doesn't sit so well with the Lord? Have you ever just stopped and wondered, like, okay, so obviously God knew that he was going to build to this 10th plague but did he set everything up to help man see just what man really is? In fact, so much so, 
is the irony even deeper that Moses' life began on what? On a basket. Why? Because that Pharaoh was trying to kill all the Israelite babies. And so now it seems that things have kind of come full circle. Pharaoh doesn't like Moses, doesn't like the Israelites. So Moses said, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And at midnight here is, is better uh, it's kind of like, it, it's twilight. It's, it's between days. So it could have been literally our midnight in our understanding. could have been 11, 1 a.m. I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. No firstborn will be left safe. All the way from the royalty to, he says, the slave girl who works at the mill. Every single firstborn in one fail swoop will be killed, will die. And who is the speaking? Moses, on behalf of who, my friends? On behalf of God. This is a very, very tough piece of scripture because... We love to talk about the grace of Christ, rightfully so. We love to talk about the merciful peace of God. But what about this? Is this still God? Is this God bringing the hammer, as it were? Is this God showing his wrath? And why would he have to kill to do that? Well, Moses, the messenger, says, Every firstborn will die. There shall, verse 6, be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be, verse 7, interestingly enough, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and more specifically, the Egyptians and the Israelites, right? The Lord will make a distinction. The Egyptians and the Israelites, his people and not his people. What's the greatest victory you've ever experienced, ever? Greatest victory. If we were to like pass the mic right now, right? Some of the jocks, some of the athletes would have great stories of championships, right? Like you'll never believe, uh, you know, my team, we won this and we, we did this and it was so awesome. Uh, some, some of the rest of you guys won Ballet contests or, um, you know, like all-state clarinetist, you know, like whatever it may be. Like there's all kinds of things, right, that we've... I literally think my greatest victory in my entire life was convincing my wife to marry me, okay? Like, and I'm not, I'm not just doing this because, I, because I'm trying to be nice or score brownie. I literally think that. Like when, when I look at my wife, when I hang with her, I'm like, how in the world did you marry me? Like how... How did this happen, you know? And the guy part of me that wants to be a victor, the guy part of me that, like, wants to, you know, be a champion, thinking about that, it kind of makes me feel like one. Because I look at her, I'm like, ta Dow, You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, this is a championship ring right there. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what this wedding ring is, you know? 2002 championship ring, Heidi married me, right? Right? <laughs> And, and, and as a believer, as a believer, there's all kinds of victories that, that we win, that we see. This is one of those that I want to introduce now is going to be tough to swallow. If you're like me, there's multiple facets of my heart in this moment. We're getting ready to watch God win. We're getting ready to watch God say to Ra, the sun God, No. You're not even real. You don't exist. I do, and I win. We're getting ready to watch God conquer Pharaoh. Oh, yeah, Pharaoh, you're going to harden your heart and not let my people go? Nine plagues worth despite the tremendous display that I've put on for you? Oh, yeah? You don't hold a candle to me. I can take every firstborn of every human, of every cattle, everything in your land. I can take them in one night. So we're going to see this like... This victory piece of God. Our God wins. Anyone that wants to try to step to our God, they will lose. Period. 
now and forevermore, right? And then there's this other piece that will have to wrestle with tremendous amounts of death. So I say this now to kind of set the stage for each of us getting into this story and watching this unfold. There's a distinction. Not even a dog is going to growl against the Israelites. Interesting picture, right? Now, verse 8, we get an image of who Moses was talking to. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Who's he? Who's he? Come on. Moses, who's angry? Moses. And it's, it's like, well, why, why now is he angry? Remember before, look, before he was angry at who? Do you remember his early stages? God, like, why, did you, why are you doing this to me, God? All these people hate me. These people aren't listening to me, God. And now his anger has shifted. Now it's not an anger in indignation. Now it's a, it seems, a righteous anger. Now it seems like Moses, listen, understands, come on, the heart of God. And he's looking at a man who's holding God's people captive. And there's a semblance of injustice that starts to rise up in his heart. And there's a fury that I picture in him. And it's not just at Pharaoh, it's that Pharaoh has been holding God's people captive and that can be no more. I'm telling you right now, Christians, it's time that believers get a little bit fired up about the injustice in our culture, in our city, in our world. Not holding a picket sign, but loving all the more. You guys see what I'm saying? We don't fight injustice with more injustice We fight injustice and what's happening to single moms and widows and the sex slaves and those who need adopt. We fight all of that injustice with more love. Wouldn't it be amazing if our love for people burned hot in our heart that at times people were like, man, you're like angry in love. Right? And we're like, yes, like my love burns hot. My love burns hot. I think that's what's going on in Moses' heart. He sees, maybe for the first time, this whole situation from God's perspective. And so he drops the mic, literally, and walks out in hot anger, telling Pharaoh that every firstborn is going to die. Then the Lord said, to encourage Moses in his anger, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Now, can, and you're like, this is going to take forever. Please, just hold on. Um, is anyone else encouraged by the fact that Moses, in his anger, steps out and who's right there? Right? And what does God do? He doesn't pat him on his back. It's all going to be okay. Uh, he's not going to listen again. But, but, that my wonders may be shown and multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart one more time, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Just imagine being the leader of a whole bunch of people, and you've seen nine plagues worth, and you've seen crazy things happen. I mean, you've seen land that has been filled with frogs, and then someone comes in and says, now all of your firstborn are going to die, and you as a leader know that you have a firstborn in your house. Don't you think in that moment there would be some idea, some conception that, you know what, maybe I should concede here. No? Hardened heart, one last time, and chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. Now this is really weird, really, really weird, okay? We hear this plague that's going to kill thousands, and then God it seems, completely shifts directions. All right, let's leave the 10th plague for a bit. And now I need to give you some direction for how we're going to lead these people. So this month is going to be a new month, he says. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, um, and you'll find this appropriate, in our calendar, the first month that God's talking about here is somewhere between March and April, okay? 
Maybe you've noticed if you carry a calendar or at least somewhat observant, Easter changes days, okay? Last year, if I remember correctly, Easter was like at the end of March. Now it's April 20th. Like what in the world is happening? Well, the calendar shifts based upon the exact dimensions that God is laying out here in Exodus chapter 12. Tell the congregation, he says, of Israel, that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house as a lamb for a household. Now, a couple things to note. Tell the what, verse 3? Tell all the what? Congregation. Uh, First time that we see this Hebrew word, congregation. And now even God in his communication, is calling this people a gathering of people, okay? And then he says, on the 10th day, on the 10th day of the first month, just in case you're curious, I'm sure all of you are, the 10th day of the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar is the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, okay? Interestingly enough, the uh, the, the 10th day of the first month just so happens to be the exact day that all the Israelites make their way across the Jordan and into the promised land. I know God does a lot of random things, but this one doesn't, right? Like, no, like every single ounce of God is sovereign, directed, and led, even down to the first month and tenth day. So he says on that day, take a lamb. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor uh, shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each shall eat, uh, you shall make your count for the lamb. Well, well later, um, rabbis, what they did is, is they set this number. So it was one lamb for at least 10 people, not to exceed, by my estimations, 20 to 30. Okay? So God says, look, if you don't have enough people to eat a lamb, just get with your neighbors, and we're going to do some things with lambs, which he's getting ready to describe. Okay? Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without, what's the word? Without blemish. Do those lambs exist? You know what I'm saying? Like when I see a lamb, I see a whole lot of blemish. You know what I'm saying? When I see animals in general, I see a whole lot of blemish, you know? Um, And so I tried to understand this, joking aside. What does God mean here by an unblemished lamb? And it means just that, a lamb that is 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 perfect, it seems. A lamb that is ready, a lamb that seems like it's been made for this moment to sacrifice. Now look at this, this is crazy. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, take either one, and look at this, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you're going to make it a pet for four days. Right? Go choose your lamb, put him in the backyard for four days. Why? You know, think about it. Come on, think about it. Like all of a sudden the kids name him, you know. Oh, look, that's so nice, right? There's Jethro, the lamb, you know. (laughs) And he kind of becomes like a family, you know, family pet. Everyone's having, right? Listen, by choosing an unblemished lamb and by keeping him, God's so strategic for four days in the house, the entire family now, takes ownership in this lamb. This lamb, listen, goes from a random lamb to now kind of a part of the family. Its significance, the weight of it, increases. See what I'm saying? Well, this, I I know like some of you guys are like, this is really, really weird. Hang on, okay? It gets weirder, okay? Um, And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, verse 6, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, the same word for midnight that we saw earlier. Um, Everyone together is going to kill their lambs, okay? That's the plan. I've described this to you before, um, but there is a a smell on the 4th of July, isn't it? If you walk out of your house on the 4th of July, yes, the pyros here smell, you know, fireworks, yes, but there is a smell of barbecue. Like when you walk out your back door, call it 11 a.m. on Anywhere that you go in the United States of America, pending a desert, like doesn't it smell like barbecue, okay? So just imagine as we're, as we're getting ready to unravel the rest of this, 
like a whole bunch of people, a congregation, sacrificing a lamb, killing a lamb, slaughtering a lamb together at twilight together, and then beginning to cook it. Just imagine if you could, like the smell, and the, we thought about like piping the smell in through the ducts, but um, we didn't. Uh, <laughs> verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. And so you're going to take this lamb, you're going to take the blood of the lamb, and then you're going to paint the doorpost, strange, with this blood. For what end? They shall eat the flesh that night. So after you sacrifice it, then you're going to eat it, roasted it on the fire, this barbecue smell, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Verse 9, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. But why? But why? You know, is, is God like setting up like a good understanding of what it means to have some good eats, you know? Listen, it's way better, medium, you know. Medium rare, not so good, you know. Or um, Pagan religions especially in Egyptian culture, did something with raw meat. And that, what they did with that is they ate it. So they would take meat, and in their sacrifices, they would eat it raw. So this is yet another move by God strategically to say we're not like them. Okay? We roast our lambs. We cook our lambs. Okay? <laughs> Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, verse 9. Its head with its legs... And it's, yes, inner parts, okay? And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. So you're, you're just, I mean, that's why we need some people, 10 plus, okay? We're going to be eaten. There's not going to be leftovers. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. And again, I say, but why? Why, God? Because the whole image of this unblemished lamb is to be a Complete sacrifice. Nothing remains. It will be used for nothing else. You're not going to put the leftovers in your fridge that doesn't exist, okay? Every piece of it either has to be eaten or burned. It's holistic. The whole thing is to be used. In this matter, verse 11, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why is he saying this? Belt fastened, sandals on? Like, I kind of like to eat in my recliner sometimes, you know? Like, like, why is Moses going to instruct these people to eat ready? Because they're getting out of Egypt, They're getting ready to celebrate the first Passover, and he says, you better eat ready because the time is now. 400 years of slavery is coming to an end tonight, my friends. And this is that victory in God piece, right, that your heart starts beating. You're like, all right, here we go. And here we go. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, verse 12, that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt, lowercase, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Can I get a witness, anybody, right? You see what I'm saying? Like God's like, no, no, no. And all the lowercase gods who aren't gods at all, who don't even exist, who these people have made up in their minds tonight, I will execute my judgments. How? Because not just will man die, not just every firstborn man or woman die, but also the beasts of the field. There will be no one that is safe from this judgment showing that every Egyptian God cannot save their people. Because if you were a God over the Egyptians, wouldn't this be your time to shine? Wouldn't this be your time to come in and save the day? And block the judgment of our God, but it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So God says, there will be the blood will be a sign for you, he says in verse 13, on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or, destor- or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Uh, how many of you guys have seen the Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston, okay, ancient, ancient flick. Okay, just a few of us. I'm sorry for the rest of you. It's an awesome movie. I will forever this day be scarred by this scene in that movie. The movie paints it, right, like a green smoke. Okay, for those of you guys that have seen the movie, 
And, and all of a sudden, this like green smoke starts coming through the land of Egypt and passing by the doorposts that have blood on the lintel and on the sides. And it's an eerie feeling because you're watching this movie play out and you're watching the smoke pass by and then go in other homes. You begin to hear the cries. It's a very, very vivid picture, one that I want you to get in your mind. But then before Moses says to the elders anything else, look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So now he says, we're not just celebrating Passover tonight, my friends. This is going to be celebrated for a long time. He calls it in verse 14, a memorial. We're going to look back on this, and we're going to remember it. And then he says, throughout all your generations, it's going to be a statute. This is going to be embedded in our culture. Verse 15, seven days, he says, you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day, you shall remove leaven. By the way, real quick, uh, leaven, unleavened, we all understand, okay? Um, The whole reason why they were going to have unleavened bread at the first Passover, because they, they were not going to have time to let the yeast rise, They had to make some bread, and they had to roll, okay? So the whole concept of what's now called matzah, unleavened bread, was that the bread wasn't going to have time to rise. And so matzah is cracker-ish, okay? Unleavened, has no leaven in it. Now God shows the power of this unleavened. Verse 15 again. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses... For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That seems kind of harsh over yeast. Right. Right? So the question is, again, but why? God, why are you commanding leaven be taken out of the houses? All kinds of people that have all kinds of theories on this topic. Well, maybe by getting the leaven out, you know, it was kind of a a symbolic nature of of purification and, and all these things. I'm not going to speculate. What I feel like we can say for sure is God was instructing, as he will for the rest of the book of Exodus, complete obedience out of his people. Like, taking the leaven out, that seems fairly specific, doesn't it? Well, haven't you felt specific calls on your life before? So what's the point? You must obey me very specifically. Okay? Take all the leaven out of your house. He goes on, verse 16, on the first day, whoa, 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 check this out, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly, no work shall be done on those days. Hello. In Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments, and the fourth commandment is what? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, but here is actually its beginnings, outside of God's Sabbathing in Genesis, this is, this is the whole premise of, of congregating having a holy assembly, worshiping together. And on those days, he says, you shall not do any work. We'll study that later as we go through Exodus. But, middle verse 16, what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. So you're going to do some work, and that's the work of preparing the meal. And you shall, verse 17, observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. The whole point of remembering this day is to remember what I've done. So we're not just going to celebrate it one year. We're going to have a feast of unleavened bread, and we're going to celebrate me pulling my people out of 400 years worth of slavery. Verse 18, in the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening, seven days worth. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. We are going to have to wrestle with these moments throughout all the rest of Exodus. I mean, there's going to be times where you're going to be like, como se dice? You know, like, like, like God, what, what are you doing? Like, why all this mumbo-jumbo? Just take your people out. Why are you instituting this? Why no leaven? Why kill the lamb? Why put the blood on the doorpost? Why do it this way? Why wear a certain thing? 
God is instituting here who, whose perspective is going to lead, whose perspective is going to guide, and who is king. Here's the commands. Here's what we're going to do. There's no room for debate. Then Moses called all the elders. Here we go. There's a whole lot of people. Just, just so we understand, hundreds of thousands of people. Some of you guys still, like, maybe in your mind, you picture, like, this is Israel at this point. All right, everybody, uh, so here's the plan. We're, you know, all going to get in tens. We're going to kill some lambs, put on the doorposts. We're saved, and we're out. Hundreds of thousands of people this message has to get to. So Moses strategically calls the, all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Stage one. Now, I'm not the best at math. Um, anyone here good at math? Just by raise of hand, do we have you pretty good at math? Okay. Um, hundreds of thousands of people. Let's just, let's just say 100,000 people, okay? Groups of 10. Do the quick, you got to carry the one. It's like 3 billion lambs. That's what that is. How, how many would it be, though? 10,000. And not just 10,000 lambs, but what? 10,000 unblemished lambs. Again, like, there's certain components of the story, whether you know it or not, that are just pretty crazy, right? Go out, and every family unit, if you have a small family, hook, hook up with a neighbor. Every family unit, go find you a lamb. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs. Thousands of them will get killed in one night. Of course, after four days of being a pet. Now, Moses called all the elders of Israel, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover land. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Now, hyssop is, um, it, it can be a flowery plant at times, sometimes like a purpley plant can come out of it. But just, just picture uh, almost like a, a straw-like looking plant with kind of some bushy tails on the end-ish, okay? And so they're to take this hyssop and dip it in the blood of the basin that is catching all the lamb's blood. And then they're supposed to take this hyssop obediently and then start painting it on the doorpost and on the lintel. If you're a random Israelite, and your generations before you have spent 400 years in slavery. Do you think at all that you would be questioning this moment? As the elders tell you, hey, listen, here's the plan. Do you think at all you'd be questioning this? You know what I say? No. Why? Nine plagues. Count them. You guys see what I'm saying? If God redeems his people of Israel after one plague... Is it possible that we would see some disobedience in the land of Israel? That they would have heard the command, hey, paint the blood on the doorpost, and they would have been like, yeah, right. You know, the blood to water, or the water to blood thing was kind of cool, but I'm not going to paint my doorpost with blood. That's strange. But look what happens. Unbelievable. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, what does the scripture say, the what? The destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This sounds like a WWE wrestler or something, destroyer. But, but, but who is it? Now, some commentators, some theologians, some scholars would say the angel of the Lord. Others would say Yahweh himself. It doesn't matter. It's God's initiation. The destroyer at this point is being sent by God to carry out wrath and justice. The destroyer is going to come. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And look at this. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you many years later, as he has promised, look what he says, you shall keep this service. And look at this. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. 
For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians. But look, what does he say? But what? But spared our houses. Listen, listen, listen. Come on. We have children in this room. We have children in this church. We have children in our lot families. We have children in our homes. And if you've ever, for once, been confused about what your role is with a kid in this congregation, let me tell you what it is. It's to tell the story. And if you're a parent, then you're the chief storyteller in your home. You're like, Mark, what story am I telling? This one. That our God has redeemed. That our God has saved. That our God, in spite of impeccable odds, has won again. Imagine home after home after home that weren't banking on great ML kids teachers to tell their kids about Jesus. Or that weren't banking on Christian schools to raise their kids. Nothing against Christian schools, nothing against great ML kids teachers, but parents, the role is yours to tell the story. And when your kids look at you and they say, Daddy, why are things the way they are? If you come up short, If you sell the gospel short, if you in your feelings of inadequacy can't exalt Christ, my friends, you're missing one of the most golden, precious opportunities that you have to tell your kids the most precious story that has ever been told. You got to see what I'm saying. And parents, it's not just your roles. I believe in this church. What a blessing in law families to have little scurriers all around, Right? In my law family, we got about 10 kids right now. They feel like 10,000 some days. I love the fact. I love the fact that those kids are in a room watching us worship together. And you know what they're watching? They're watching us talk about the story. They're watching us celebrate the story. They're watching us come around God's word and listen to more of the story. You guys see what I'm saying? That's our role here. And that's what God is saying. You tell them. This was the Passover. God redeemed his people. You tell them that story for generation upon generation. You tell them because they'll forget. They will forget. Sooner than later, they will forget. You tell them, right? Well, now our story gets intense. And the people, look look what this says. What? Bowed their heads and what? Worshiped. What an amazing moment in the Bible. Listen, there there are certain moments where you, you just, you have to just stop and say, what an amazing picture. If you're a human and you're hearing this plan, isn't there something in you that's like, I don't know that I should worship this. What is this? How could God do this? How could he take the firstborns? But this moment shows us that no one, no one is contemplating God's sovereignty. Everyone is contemplating God. You guys see the difference? You see what I'm saying? It's easy to ask why. It's easy to point your finger at God and act like you have a better plan. But what is really needed is thanking the Lord for being the Lord. And that's what this entire nation does. In the face of nine plagues waiting on a tenth, they bow their heads and say, there is only one God. Now, will they struggle with this later? 100%. Do you struggle with it? Yes. Are there moments where you seem completely abandoned in worship of God and then the next day cursing the Lord? Yes, you've been there. I've been there too. We forget easily because sometimes we focus more on the whys and not the who behind the why. Then the people of Israel went and did so. Is anyone else amazed? They obey. They obey. Okay, unleaven, check. Eat with every, okay, check. Go get a lamb. Yes, got it. Get together with some neighbors. They, They obey. They do it. They go for it. Just as the Lord had commanded, the end of verse 28 says, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne 
to the firstborn of the captive who was in his dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Just like we estimated the amount of lambs. Egypt is a very prominent place. Is there any piece of us that can understand this moment? It happens. God said it would. It happens. Uh, The scripture says specifically, Pharaoh rose up, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not, look at this, there was not one house where someone was not dead. Uh, Could I have all the firstborn stand up, please? Now, this isn't a moment where we're going to sacrifice you. To <laughs> You guys can have a seat. Point, point proven, right? Now, does anyone notice what, what the scripture said? And what, what does it say? And Pharaoh rose up. What does that mean? Did as much possible research on this phrase that I possibly could. Here's what I understand to be. He was sleeping. I'm sorry. I'm a dad. After nine plagues, if someone said that my firstborn's going to die, I'm not going to bed. I mean, I'm not laying down. I'm holding that kid in my arms. And if anyone tries to step to it, I don't care who they are, like I will bring the fury. You know what I'm saying? But, but look at the pompous arrogance after nine plagues of Pharaoh. He's fast asleep. Psh, it's all good. No. He rises up because he begins, listen, to hear the cries in the land. Cry upon cry. He rises up and then guess what, guys? He calls. For the last time, he calls them. And he says, all right, it's time. Middle verse uh, 30, he rose up, and there was a great cry. Then verse 31, he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Verse 32, take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And remember, this whole plague journey has been what? You can, your old can go, but not your young You guys can go, but not your flocks. Your flocks can go, but not you. That'd be weird. There would be no one leading them. And finally, and finally, he says, everybody, everyone, it's time. Up and go. And then what is he in? And bless me. It's a hurting man. It's a hurting man. Uh, Ten plagues worth that are all very, very real. And the last one, the last one comes down to a perfect Passover lamb whose blood, if it's on the doorpost, means redemption. Now, there is not one sin that has been committed in this room, not one, that the blood of Christ cannot save. There is not one. And I know some of you feel like you got a pretty heavy one. Or three. Or five. There is not one. There is not one person in this room. In this world. That the blood of Jesus isn't enough for. A tenth plague to set up an entire Old Testament worth of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs whose blood would be shed, all waiting one perfect Passover lamb whose blood would cover it all. The all-sufficient, all-perfect, all-forever, all-redeeming, all-sanctifying blood of Jesus. No more lambs. No more painting it on blood posts, the blood dripped down on a cross and then covering my heart and maybe yours. And there's not one of you. 
There's not one of you. As far away that you feel tonight or distant as you feel tonight or broken as you feel tonight or just utter, just sitting in your sin, there's not one of you that are exempt from the opportunity to share in the forgiveness that the blood of Christ is. Doorposts aren't anything in comparison to a Savior on a cross and an empty tomb. Nothing. The blood carries so much weight, my friends. But we've forgotten. We've stopped telling the story. We've stopped celebrating. We start worrying. We start holding on to things that carry no value. We start looking at all the peripheral things in our life and forget that the blood sacrifice means that we're atoned for our sin and for the love. Then there's reason to live. Then I actually got something to hold on to. I have something to live for. I have something to experience now. So I just want every single one of you to understand before we get ready to take one of these unleavened pieces of bread and dip it in the cup and share in the story of Christ, I want every single one of you in your heart to know that you can be forgiven. Death, because of the blood of Christ, though it gets your flesh, has no sting on the soul. And you and I in Christ forever in glory, not worried about a thing except the exaltation of our great God. I'm going to invite my brothers, my leaders to come up here with me here tonight. I feel like, um, I feel like there's reason to celebrate tonight. I feel like each of us tonight can stand in victory for what the Lord has done. This is way more than a symbol. This tonight is our opportunity as a church to take one of these unleavened matzah pieces of bread and dip it in the cup and you once again in your heart cherish the fact that God has lavished his grace on you. And for those of you that walked in here tonight feeling unforgivable, maybe this time and this meal means something that it never has before. That you too can share in the forgiveness of Christ. So all of our Lot family leaders are up here. And some of you guys who are in Lot families, maybe it's an opportunity for you to find your leader and to let them serve you and to pray over you. But for the rest of us tonight, let's take some time and enjoy the real forgiveness of Christ. Respond when you're ready. Come on.